Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here uh, this morning. Thank you for uh, bringing the, the church into uh, this sanctuary. If you're somebody that's newer to Crosspoint, my name is uh, Jamie, and it's my great privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. And it's my joy, uh, what I get to do most weeks, is open up the scriptures with you all and to uh, invite us into this great story, this love story that God has for his people. And we're gonna continue in that this morning as we journey through this series, through the book of First Thessalonians. In in this series called Rise, as we've been looking at since Easter, that we are these resurrection people. And because the tomb is empty, Jesus invites us into this whole new way of life. There's been the first advent of King Jesus, and we await his second advent when he returns and he sets everything right. And in that time, like, how are we to actually live? What does the resurrection say about our lives right here and right now? And this book, this letter of 1 Thessalonians is helping us to, to see that. So again, welcome. So glad that you're here. If you're tuning in for Crosspoint at Home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or dining room or wherever you happen to be watching from. Here's what I want you to do. If you uh, have a Bible, uh, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are Bibles in the pews. I'd encourage you to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you as uh, a gift. You can also scan. There's a QR code there in the pew uh, that'll bring up a menu where you can click sermon notes. The text will be there. I want you to follow along. And before I read this, all right, let me just state something that is part of like who we are as a church, part of the culture that we have sought by God's grace um, to establish from very, very early on. And it is this, that one of the best things that we can do, not just for the congregation, but also as a pastor, one of the best things, one of the most helpful things that I can do for my own soul and what God has called me to is to regularly pick a book of the Bible, and then methodically, verse by verse, walk through that with a group of people. Now, there's a lot of different ways one can approach the scriptures in terms of coming up with sermon series. It's not to say we always preach through a book of the Bible, but we do want this to be a regular practice. And here's the reason why. The reason I think it's so helpful, not just for you, but for me, is it doesn't allow me then as the preacher to sort of get on a soapbox or to kind of cherry pick what are my favorite passages and just keep talking about those things. Like when you preach through a book of the Bible, you're gonna run across texts that you have, like you, you kind of start your sermon prep and you're like, oh, I can't wait to preach this. This is gonna be awesome. This is, just, this is amazing, right? And then there are other weeks you're like, can I find a guest preacher? Because um, I'm not sure what to do with this text, right? Um, or there's, these, there's a weightiness to certain things. There are texts that on our own, we wouldn't necessarily always be like, yep, that's what I wanna, wanna talk about. And today we get into kind of the back half of the book of this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And Paul's gonna be talking very practically. You'll see a shift where, that he makes where he's gonna begin to address certain topics. And as he gets into the topic of human sexuality uh, today, it will probably become clear to you why I think it's so important that we regularly preach through books of the Bible so that we don't skip over things, so that I'm not tempted to just be like, well, we'll move past that because that can be controversial. Like we need to press into this because God has given us all of the scriptures. It's all profitable. It's all his word. It's all in there. It's been actually given for our instruction, for our flourishing, not to rob us of joy, but so we might have greater joy in the Lord. And so if you would, if you're able, please stand in, as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter four, verses one to eight. So hear God's word for us this morning. Paul writes this, finally then brothers, 
we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we have told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is God's word. You may be seated. His name is Dr. Ivan Foz. Dr. Ivan Foz was for many years, the chair of the sociology department at a school called Wheaton College, where I happened to go for my undergraduate uh, degree. And as I was pursuing a undergraduate degree in history and social science, I had to take a number of sociology courses. And Dr. Foz was one that the student body, as you maybe if you're familiar with this, you would ask around and be like, well, what's the professor that's interesting? Maybe it's not too hard, that's fair, right? Like you're kind of trying to sort all those things out. And everything that I had heard about Dr. Foz was just like, you got to take a class with this guy. Um, and there are a number of different, different reasons, one of which was just, man, like how this guy presented himself. At this point, and I mean, I'm there, this would have been, I'm probably taking a class in like 1995, 96, I don't know, I'm 19, 20 years old, somewhere in that, in that range. And Dr. Foz was well advanced in years at that point, all right? And he had sort of this like Al Pacino sort of look to him a bit, like Al Pacino, like son of a woman kind of, if you've ever seen that film. Um, And he's got this like slick back hair and he was always in a three-piece suit, right? And he had this cool pointy beard with this sort of like salt and pepper hair. And he wore these cool like framed glasses. And then he always had the bow tie. And he was this relatively, he wasn't a super tall guy and he had this, but he had this suit on and, and he just, even at an older age, just had this energy about him. Um, just this vibrancy. I mean, he would come into class, all right? And here we were, we're probably 15 to 20 of us, mainly 19 and 20 year olds gathered in this classroom. And he was that type of professor, right? It sort of felt like a, you know, like a dead poet society sort of moment, right? He didn't just stand up there and be like, you know, through his notes. I mean, he would pace and oftentimes you might be taking notes and you'd look up and like, oh, this dude's like right in my face. Like he'd just like move over and he'd just be talking to you like this, like just so animated there with his, you know, cool suit on and his bow tie and, and all of this. And the class that I took with Dr. Ivan Foz was a class on the sociology of the family. And in this particular class, we talked about family systems and structures and all of, all of these things. And it was fascinating. And he was just passionate about his subject matter. And he was passionate about his students. He was passionate about inviting students to his home to get to know his family, just a super generous guy. But there's one day in particular that I remember that as he came into the classroom and we were all there and it's, it's a, you know, a Midwest afternoon and it's cold and dreary, and, but he just comes in, he brings this particular energy into the room. It was the day that part of the lecture was gonna be on marriage and in particular marriage and human sexuality. And Dr. Ivan Foz here began teaching the, this lecture and he seemed more animated even than, than normal right? And he's lecturing, he's pacing the kind of the the aisles and he's talking to us. 
And then I distinctly remember at one point, he moves to the back, kind of to the front of the room. And he's like, my friends. And he's very passionate. And everybody's just kind of like leaning in at this point. He's like, can you make me a promise? And he's like, can you promise me that if by God's grace, he ever graces you with a spouse and you're in that beautiful covenant of marriage with all its beauty and its brokenness and the difficulty. He's like, will you promise me this? He's like, will you promise me that one day, you know, if, if uh, you've got this, the husband or this wife, like that you will attempt to kind of sweep them off their feet, like that they would come home one day and you would have a, just a gourmet meal planned for them and candles would be lit and music would be softly playing and flowers out or, you know, good scents, like all of these things, like just make it like this feast and then sit down and have this glorious meal with your spouse. And don't just talk about the weather or what your plans are. Don't get the calendars out and sort of coordinate around like who's picking the kids up or doing any of that and that stuff that needs to be done. But just like, just have somebody, if you had kids, like have them away with a babysitter or something, but just like, just the two of you. And he's like, and I want you to just connect and to attune to one another and, and just be so dialed in and be effusive in your praise to your spouse call out like their, their dignity and their beauty, their glory, like speak to them about like what you see, how you see God at work in their life and just go have this dinner. And so we're all like, okay, we're taking notes, right? Like, is this on the exam? What are we doing here, right? Um, and, and then he said, at a certain point, he's like, I want you, promise me this, that you will go over to the stereo and he, that you will crank it about as loud as it can go and that you will pick out a particular piece of music. I want you to play Handel's Messiah in particular, the, the Hallelujah Chorus. And I want you to play the Hallelujah Chorus as loud as the speakers will go. And then I want you to undress your spouse and make love. And we all sat there like, what is happening right now, right? And he was very, very passionate about this, right? And we're all like, yes, Dr. Foz, whatever you say, right? Um, but there was something that he was doing in that moment, all right? So bear with me, all right? Um, he was calling us to a vision of how God had created sexuality to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. He was speaking against some of the, the hurt and pain that can be so associated. He's calling us away from like this, this unhelpful sort of purity culture, but also calling us away from this progressive permissiveness of just anything goes. And he was saying, the Lord has a vision for your marriage and the gift of this sexuality that he's given to you. And there's a way that that can be expressed to bring joy to the spouse that the Lord has given to you. He was communicating to us in that moment. He's like, I don't know if anybody's ever said this to you, but I'm here. He's like, kind of felt like he was like this prophet out in the wilderness being like, here's what I want to speak to you. Like, I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has an intention for your sex life. Like he wants you to have a flourishing, a great sex life with your spouse. I was like, man, that's why people take this class. This is amazing, right? Um, and so he, we end up having that whole lecture and that, image, friends, that bringing together of music even, that he was like this, because what's he trying to get us to see? That God is not looking at sexuality as like, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't see that happening, right? It's like his design. And that to see that, as Paul would say, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, even who we are in our makeup, 
and sexuality properly expressed within the covenant of marriage can bring glory to God and be used to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus. And that reminder, that worship music, that particular song, which I might've ruined it for you, you might never think of the same way again, right? Um, Or maybe I've made it better, I don't know. But anyway, um, in that, that we would see this opportunity to glorify God with all of who we are. Friends, there's a sacredness about sexuality. And that's what this passage presses into. Now we're gonna talk about the sacredness of sex. We wanna talk about the ways that it's been secularized, like where the, the, the religion, the, the, in the best sense of that, that word, the spirituality of it has been, been taken out. And we wanna talk about the signpost that sex is, all right? But first, the sacredness. Look back with me at verses one to three. Paul is writing this. This is First uh, Thessalonians 4, one to three. And he's speaking to them, all right? And it's very important to see this pattern that the apostle Paul lays out. Like if you read his letters, so often here's what you'll find. So you can pick up Galatians or Ephesians, right? Philippians here in First Thessalonians. You will see this pattern emerging. And he begins to get at it here in verses one to two. He says this, finally, which is a way to say, all right, in light of all that I've said in the first three chapters, then in light of that, then brothers, we ask, this is brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, he's like, hey, you're doing some things right, that you do so more and more for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. All right, so not to go too much of a grammar lesson here, but the way to think about this is there's this movement throughout Paul's letters, again, in 1 Thessalonians, from the indicative to the imperative. The indicative meaning he has spent three chapters unpacking and unfolding for us, like who we are in Christ. In fact, at the end of chapter three, which we looked at last week, there's this word that Paul uses to describe, not just this group, this church in Thessalonica, but also to speak to you and me here in 2023, to say, if you are in Christ, and here's the word, here's what he calls us. He's saying, this is your identity. You are a saint. Now, you may not feel like a saint. You might not have acted like a saint. Your driving record on I-4 might prove that you're not a saint, but whatever it is, here's what is objectively true. The indicative speaks of this. This is what is true of you. He reminds us of that. That is the storyline of the Bible. The Bible does not start with imperatives of things to do so that you will be a certain way. There's so many places we go to this, but one of the best examples is think about this. You remember the story of God's liberation of his people from slavery in Egypt, right? They are slaves for hundreds of years. God does not start out by saying, all right, Mount Sinai, the law, 10 commandments. Guys, you get this right. If you follow the checklist, if you do these things, just keep the top 10, right? If you do that, liberation awaits you. That is not the storyline, right? What's the storyline? God, by his grace, calls a people to himself, forms a people, rescues them, redeems them, delivers them, then brings them out and says, okay, you're my people. This is indicative sort of language. And now I will give you these commands. I want you to walk in obedience. This imperative, here's what he's doing. He's saying, I'm inviting you to become who you already are, that you are in Christ. There's this movement from the indicative to the imperative. So what we see here now in 1 Thessalonians is Paul saying, I've spent this time. It's not that we're moving on from the gospel. It's telling us how the gospel informs everything. So as we look at like love of neighbor and, and work and vocation, even next week, we have to see it in that context. 
We have to see this, the topic of sexuality, of sex as part of this. There's imperatives not to rob us of joy so that we might actually experience what God has for us. So he says this, verse three, for this is the will of God. We all wanna know what the will of God is, right? And we wrestle with things like, should I take this job? Should I move here? Should I marry this person? Should I, whatever, go on this trip, spend money in this way, buy this house. But when we boil it down and actually then sort of like zoom out, it's like the will of God, though God cares about all these things. He says, the will of God is your sanctification. The will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That God does not say that you abstain from sex. But rather, he says, no, that you abstain from sexual immorality because God's concern for you is your sanctification, meaning this, your growth in Christ-likeness. You and I being formed more and more to the image and likeness of Jesus. And what's so fascinating that Paul does here is he's saying, listen, like that actually happens through the gift within covenant marriage of the gift of sex. And the enjoyment of that being done for the glory of God can be part of your sanctification. There are things to flee. There are things to avoid. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But when he says that the will of God is your sanctification, he's saying you are the chosen, the beloved of God. God has set his affection on you. You are in Christ. He's reminding this group of people of their identity, all the indicative. And he's saying the invitation now of sanctification is to become more and more of who you already are in Christ. See God's kindness in that. He is not this cosmic killjoy God. More so than Dr. Ivan Foz is even saying, I want you to enjoy this. I want to use it for your sanctification. But what often happens, and we'll look at kind of the, the extremes of this, I think on one level, and my guess is a number of you probably have experienced this, where it would never be communicated quite this way, but most of sexuality so often in the church is don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And almost what's held up with this level of reverence, right, is at the level, it's almost like, oh, I feel like we worship virginity more than Jesus. Like that sometimes is what gets communicated. Or unknowingly, we end up communicating, like what gets communicated is sort of this weird, like sex is, you know, dirty, wicked, vile. So please save it for the one you love. Like, wait, what? There's this good gift in many ways that can get, might say it gets demonized. Paul dealt with this, interestingly enough. I'll, you'll see that I'll go back to a different letter of Paul, 1 Corinthians, because that book is, it's much longer than 1 Thessalonians and it deals with some of these things more in depth. But he's dealing with a group of people and he's writing because word has come to Paul that some are saying, hey, this can't possibly honor the Lord. And so we need to avoid it. Husbands and wives of avoiding it, thinking that they're honoring the Lord. And Paul is like, wait, guys, no, you're, you're, you're missing it. You're not actually following the way of Jesus. You're following this Platonic Greek thinking, like the philosopher Plato, that would, that would view that the spirit is the thing that's good and right and beautiful, but the body, the body is to be discarded. Don't, don't do things that involve the body. You're trying to get away from the body as much as possible. But that's not what the Bible speaks of. If you're like, really? Like, yeah, like the resurrected Jesus, flesh and blood, right? Like God cares about your body, soul, mind, all of it. First Corinthians chapter seven, Paul says this, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, someone says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, 
But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. He continues in verse four, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Friends, these We'll see more of the context for this in a moment, but these are like radical words, even of equality. Like it would have been commonplace. The people would have expected, yeah, the husband like functionally like owns the body of the woman. That's how the view was. It was totally jacked up and, and wrong in, in the, the way that that was approached, right? But in a right and good way that God says like, no, like the wife belongs to, to the husband, but also the husband belongs to the wife. Like there's this level playing field of which the image of God is elevated, like in both of them to say like, hey, like, this is given as a gift for both of you. This was radical when we learn a bit more about the culture in just a moment. But friends, that's what it is speaking of. There's this sacredness to it. Let me read to you a few verses that interestingly enough, they don't ever end up on coffee cups, but maybe they should, I don't know, all right? Um, Song of Solomon, chapter seven, verse one to nine, all right? There is an element here that I think like we can almost like blush at some of this, but the Bible doesn't. Like there's nothing about what I'm about to read that God is like, <laughs> right? Like he is just not, this is just not his take on it. This is his word to us. Song of Solomon, chapter seven, verses one to nine. How beautiful are your feet in sandals. This is a, a man who's just thanking God for this wife that has been given to him. Like he's just marveling at her, right? And not in an objectifying way. There's ways that this could go wrong for sure. But, but what he's, getting at. He's just like, I want you to know how beautiful I see you. And he's describing her. She's not, the total, she's not just her physical makeup, but it doesn't exclude that. How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of bath Rabim, And your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks toward Damascus. That one's confusing to me. I don't know how that's a compliment, right? But anyway, there your nose is like a tower. Like, wait, what? But anyway, it's in the Bible. So he continues, your head crowns you like caramel and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one. With all your delight, your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. God's word to us, the sacredness of this gift. As the pastor and theologian who is actually now the, the president of Wheaton College says this, Philip Reichen, although God's word, it is never pornographic, it is unashamedly erotic. If this comes as an embarrassment to some Christians, it is only because we are more prudish than God is. The Bible celebrates the sexual act of love exclusively within marriage as a gift from God. And so there is this sacredness to it. And Paul is going great lengths, not only in the letter to Thessalonians, but throughout his writings to say, this is a gift from God. And yet amidst the sacredness, things can go in the other direction. 
And I would put to you that what we see, there's this call through the rest of verse three into verse six, it, maybe in our language, it would be the secularization of sexuality, like completely divorcing it from the, the spirit, the divorcing it from, from God, from religion, from belief, all, all of that. And so Paul, again, let's look at the back part of verse three. He says, the will of God is your sanctification, becoming more of who you already are. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. So he doesn't say abstain from sex. That's what he was dealing with in the church in, in Corinth or one of the many things he was dealing with with the church in Corinth. But he says, abstain from sexual immorality. So part of your sanctification, all right, is seeing the sacredness of sex within the covenant of marriage, but also to abstain from sexual immorality. And when the Bible uses that term, all right, sexual immorality comes from this Greek word, porneia. You can see in the root there, it's where we get word like pornography, things like that. Porneia was this word that included, it encompassed a number of different things. So when we read in the scriptures, all right, to flee, to abstain from porneia, from sexual morality, it includes, it's not limited to what I'm about to put up on the screen, but it includes these things. All right, so when you read this, whether it's Paul or Jesus directly speaking about sexual morality, these are the things that it, that it means, all right? It could be more than these, all right? We don't have a time to do a deep dive onto all of these things. And I realize every one of these things, like Paul is addressing, please hear me in this. He's writing this because he's a pastor and he cares deeply for very real people that are on the receiving end of this letter. And he knows the brokenness and he knows that the shame that can be carried. He knows all of this. And these are very nuanced conversations, all right? Like, that's what we want to have here. Like, we're talking about some doctrinal and ethical issues, but don't miss the, the heart of a pastor in this. And so things that are brought up also know, like, this is a place, like, the reality is we are all broken and we are all sinful and we have all sinned sexually in some way. And God's grace abounds for all of us. But when he uses this word to, like, abstain from sexual morality, abstain from pornea, he means such things as, Sex outside of marriage, so premarital sex would be included in that. He would include adultery in this, all right? Pornography would be included in that. An emotional affair, emotional infidelity would be included in that. Homosexuality would be included in that, that to be differentiated from same-sex attraction, but like a practicing homosexuality would be included in that. Lust would be included in that. There's just a few of the things that that actually gets at. So Paul's saying, avoid these things. He would write to the church in Corinth to flee these things. Not because God, again, is trying to rob us of joy, but God wants us to experience all that he has. His goal is our sanctification. His goal is actually for us to experience more and more of God's grace and the joy that he has for us. But what functionally has happened, if on the one hand, the good gift can get demonized, it also can get deified. And so I think that is something that we see, not just in the church in Thessalonica, but it's what plays out in our culture. And by our culture, I don't mean all the people out there that get it wrong. I'm saying all of us, like there can be a tendency for it to be deified. But if we think about the culture, let me read to you something. Um, th this man, there's a, there's a quote that I ran across from uh, somebody that lived a couple hundred years before the time of Paul, he would, would have been viewed as just some sort of like in today's vernacular, a cultural influencer in the city of Athens. And his view, what he says here, it was not him saying, this is, this is how I think it should be. He was literally just commenting on what was normative, what was actually true in most Greco-Roman cultures of that day, of which sometime later, the apostle Paul is doing ministry in. 
So if you're wondering, right, or maybe you have this notion, if we just go back to the biblical times, you're gonna see very clearly, you should know, like, no, no, things have, there's always been pervasive sexual sin. It's not to minimize it, but we shouldn't be looking at our time and place and being like, oh, it's completely gone off the rails and I wish we could just get back to the Bible. You should read the Bible and see, like, there's always been things to address. But Demonstes said this, here's the culture that Paul's seeking to minister. Now you think about this, a group of people, remember the context, put yourself back there if you can a couple thousand years ago. It's a group of people, talking particularly as this quote references men in the culture, boys who have grown up to be men who would have lived what they would have seen exhibited by their dad and their grandpa and every male that they interacted with was a view of women that was degrading literally just to be used for their, for their own enjoyment, their own pleasure. And the normative thing was not just to have sex with your wife, but with multiple women. Demonstrative said this, mistresses we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children. He's not saying this is how it should be. He's saying this is how it is. And so every man, it was the common practice would have a minimum three, four, five women at any given point. Some were mistresses, right? For the sexual pleasure. Some even within that would have been prostitutes, cult prostitution, a mixing of prostitution with religion was rampant in the day concubines, other commentators would comment on this, that yes, that also would include sex, but also could be, that's the person maybe that you're like kind of emotionally processing with, like the one that's asking like, hey, honey, how was your day? Those sorts of things, right? And then you would have a wife given to you, oftentimes arranged to have legitimate children. And that usually meant males. That's what they meant. Because oftentimes even the girls were discarded and put on the trash heap. And for another sermon for another day, I wanna know why the church took off is because the church went out and rescued those kids and began to bring them in and love them out. So radically countercultural. And that is where Paul is writing. It's in that sort of context that he writes like verse four, so that each of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor. You see how radically different what Paul is saying, how honoring actually to women it would be as well for him to say, hey, you're supposed to have one wife. And yeah, she might bear you children, all right? But she's, she's it. Like she is the gift from God that God has given to you to enjoy the wife of your youth. He's saying so how to control his own body and holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, this epithemia, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Do we control it? Like Paul, again, in the church of Corinth is saying, he references a phrase that was common in that, that day because the impulse was this, whatever your bodily impulse is, you got a hunger impulse, well, then you feed your body. You got an impulse for sex, well, then you have sex. It doesn't matter actually who it's with. And so Paul, again, is addressing the, this lust in 1 Corinthians chapter six, the phrase was food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And he's like, that would have been the, that's the mindset, the philosophy of sorts that was applied to all situations. But he says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It's not meant for this pornea, but it's meant to like serve the Lord and the Lord for the body. The Lord cares about your body. The Lord cares about your sexuality. The Lord cares about all these things. And his goal is your sanctification. And so do we hear that? Do we understand that? Sadly, I think in this culture that we find ourselves in, and it's not, again, just out there, it's here in the church as well, is we're less faithful or we're more Freudian, 
was reading a, a book by Carl Truman and in it, he was quoting Sigmund Freud and Freud is talking about this pursuit of ultimate happiness. And here's how he describes it, all right? Here's this quote from Freud who said this in regards to this pursuit of happiness. Man's discovery that sexual genital love afforded him the strongest experiences of satisfaction and in fact provided him with the prototype of all happiness must have suggested to him that he should continue to seek the satisfaction of happiness in his life along the path of sexual relations and that he should make genital erotism the central point of his life. And you're like, really? Is that what he said? But this is playing out. I mean, this is literally the dominant narrative. This is what we are being discipled by every moment of every day. There's this secularization of sex. We've lost sight of the sacredness of it. We've failed to have a good vision of what God would call us to. And we either just go the route of demonizing it or we end up deifying it and going just like the rest of the culture. And so a few verses later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, picking back up in verse 15, Paul says this in regards to our bodies, the importance. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He's speaking of this union that we have. And Paul continues. So flee from porneia, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And this is the line I think that is most upsetting to our cultural sensibilities today. It says this, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. That idea there that you are not your own, it flies in the face of so much of just the, this kind of hyper expressive individualism that we find. Like everything today is like, like you follow your heart. You do what feels good. You do you, right? And the self is at the center of the universe. And friends, it is not leading to the flourishing. It is over-promising and way under-delivering. And so Paul is addressing this and he's reminding you, hey, actually the, the best possible place to be is to actually realize you're not your own. You belong to God. How did he purchase you? How, how is it that you're not your own? Because you were purchased with the blood of Jesus, that Jesus died for you. And Jesus didn't go and die for all the people that had everything all together, you know, figured out sexually. Okay, those are the people that I'll die for. I'm gonna bring them over onto my team. No, he dies for the ungodly, right? He dies for the sexually immoral. He dies for all of us who at some level are guilty of porneia. Because the scriptures even speak of this reality, right? That Jesus would say in Matthew 5, even if you've ever looked lustfully at a woman, you have committed adultery. So you take that, this epithemia, this lust, right? If you've ever lusted after somebody, you've ever lusted to be married, you've ever lusted to be out of your marriage and with somebody else, like any of those things, you've ever looked lustfully, you've ever been dissatisfied with what God has given you and had this sort of contempt for your situation. Like all of that is functionally saying, our prime allegiance is to worship God, but we'd lust after something else. So we're all spiritually adulterous. And Jesus says, those are the people I'm coming to purchase. Those are the people that I'm going to die for. Sex is meant 
in the context of marriage to communicate something. It is to be seen as a way of reenacting the vows that you made. So if you're married, you know that at some point there was a portion of the ceremony where you committed your life and likely said something along the lines of like, I give myself completely and only to you. Tim Keller commented on this, says this, sex is a way then to say to somebody else, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And if you use it to say anything else, it's a lie. It's a nonverbal piece of communication God designed, and it's meant to carry a message. It's a communication mode. And if you use it in any other context, you destroy its usefulness. It is the way to say, I give myself completely and only to you not just when you stood in front of God and these witnesses, but every time you engage this act of intimacy with the spouse that God has given to you, you are communicating. I continue, I continue to choose you. I love you. I care for you. You are a gift to me. Praise God for you. Praise God for these bodies that he's given to us. May we continue to love each other faithfully. It is this act of covenant renewal that is taking place in each and every time. It's why it's so important to the marriage context because it's communicating, I love you, I continue to pursue you. That is what it's meant to communicate. And when it is used outside of that, it is saying with our bodies, I give myself completely to you. But if it's used outside of marriage, there's nothing then to back that up. It's not communicating what is meant to communicate. So ultimately friends, what we see is there's a sacredness to it. We see ways that it gets secularized and we miss God's intentions for it. And all of this, it's meant to be an ultimate signpost. It's meant to point us to a deeper reality. It's meant to communicate something beyond even just the act itself, as great as that is and the gift that that actually is. And I have used this illustration uh, before um, and I'll keep going to it until one of you give me a, a better one to use. But when you think about a sign, right? Like you think about a sign, like maybe you decide to like load kids up or like you got grandkids or whatever, and you're gonna travel and you're gonna go to Disney, all right? And if you get out of the, the road, you know, off to the side of the road along I-4, where you see the sign that says Disney, exit here, right? And you're jumping around and you're screaming and like, woohoo, we're here, Magic Kingdom, happiest place on earth, as cars are whizzing by, right? Everyone's looking at it like, they've lost their mind because you've mistaken the sign for where it's actually pointing to. And this is ultimately in some ways what we do with sex. It's meant to point to a deeper and truer reality. And we're like the people on the side of the road being like, we're here, we've arrived. And we've missed that it's meant to point us to something else. There's something deeper that is being communicated. And so in verses seven to eight, Paul reiterates some themes. For God has not called us for impurity. He's called us to holiness. Again, that could be translated as this sanctification, becoming more who we really are, already are. Therefore, whoever disregards this, if you disregard this teaching, disregards not man, but he wants us to feel the weightiness of it. Like you disregard not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You're the temple of the spirit. You're empowered by the spirit, empowered to live in a whole new way. Imagine the good news that this was to a church in Thessalonica that was like, oh my goodness, I don't know how to live in this. I'm already this new creation in Christ, but I still got this culture that I'm dealing with and all the baggage and, likely lots of people that would have been like, okay, I'm a Christian now. I've got a wife, I've got a mistress, I've got a concubine. Like, what do I do with these things, right? Like talking about the sanctification process. 
And God is saying through his servant, Paul, the Holy Spirit is with you. He will empower you. He's going to sanctify you. Keep pursuing that. Do not disregard this though. Because when you do, you don't disregard man or their opinions, you disregard God. And there's a weightiness to that that I think we need to feel. And yet there's an invitation in that as well. Because as I stated earlier, the reality of the situation is there is no one here who is 100% innocent. There's no one, even as it pertains to pornea. And yet the gospel, the good news of what we celebrate, the thing that it just Paul had this vision for and this passion for is that, listen, we may disregard God and we may choose self over sanctification. And we may be people that are like, yeah, we're not going faithfulness. We're going Freudian and all of that. And yet God looks at us. And if you are in Christ, he never disregards you. There is a God who never disregards because when he looks at you still, even in our brokenness, right? He sees his son, Jesus. He sees his righteous. He doesn't see your shame. He doesn't see all the faults of the pornea that you and I have committed. All that was nailed to the cross. He sees you and he never disregards you. He has promised to always be with you. He always pursues you. And he invites us in this kindness to repentance because he wants us to enjoy more of this process of sanctification, even the gift, the good gift that sex is in the right context. But friends, know this, there is a God who never disregards, that Jesus has paid for it all. And so when Paul is writing another letter to another church, a church in Ephesus, he says these words about this signpost. And he says this, referencing marriage, right? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's this union that happens in the marriage as it's consummated in the act and the gift of sex. The two shall become one flesh. But notice what Paul says. He's like, I'm not just talking about the husband and wife. I'm talking about the ultimate groom and his ultimate pursuit of a church, of a bride. And this bride is wayward and this bride is unfaithful and this bride is not pristine. She is stained in all of this. And he continues to pursue. He says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so yes, enjoy sex in the context of marriage, but know this, it's a signpost. It's meant to point us to the reality, the deeper, truer, more beautiful reality that this is speaking of, this union is speaking of Christ and his church, of his unrelenting pursuit of you and me, his willingness to die for his bride, to sacrifice everything for his bride. When you and I know that, when we know how loved we are, how pursued we are, it frees us up to live in more glad obedience. I, I trust you, Lord, with everything, including my body, including this gift of sexuality. And know this, that if you're in Christ, you are forgiven. There is grace upon grace upon grace. He relentlessly pursues you. It refers to Christ and his church. I'll close with this, but the late theologian R.C. Sproul, in regards to this signpost, he says these words, the marriage state then, friends, is the image of my relationship to God in a profound way. And this is true whether you are married or not. Because if you're a Christian, then there's a groom and it's Jesus. And you're part of the bride, the church. And what is expressed here in this is as true of you as anybody. He says these words, the marriage state is the image of my relationship with God in a profound way. Both my relationship to God and my relationship to my wife involves a covenant structure 
in which mutual parties are bound to each other by commitment sealed with oaths. Both involve knowing and intimacy. Both create a place where I can be naked and unashamed. In marriage, I enter the most intimate of all human relationships. It involves risk, but it's to work. But if it's to work, I must be naked. If I expose myself utterly and discover that my wife is seeing all that I am spiritually, emotionally, and physically, and understands who I am and still loves me, then I experience at the human level something of the most deep and profound love of all. God has seen all of me. God has seen all of me. In Christ, he accepts me and gives himself to me. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. And he continues to see all of us, every last aspect of us. And he willingly, for the joy that was set before him, pursued the cross, scorning its shame. It's like, those are my people. He's coming after us. He continues to pursue us with his love and his grace. May we see in this text, this signpost, what is meant to point us to is the pursuit, the grace, the mercy of our God who loves us so faithfully. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness toward us and your son, Jesus. We thank you for your unending grace, your mercy. Thank you that you see all of who we are, our brokenness, our shame, our our rebellion, the ways we have disregarded you. And Jesus, we thank you that you were disregarded on our behalf so that we could be regarded as, as new creations in Christ. May we not lose sight of that. May that fuel and empower us to live lives of, of grateful and glad obedience, trusting God, you as our father, you know best how we are to live, that you're not here trying to rob us of joy, but you want us to experience a deep and abiding joy. And so God, with all of who we are, we pray that we would live in such a way, God, that you would get the glory that you deserve and that we as your people would experience this deep and lasting joy. We pray in Christ's name, amen.